0: Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell.
1: And I'm Don Mills.
0: So Don, I had an excellent conversation today with Denny LaRock, President and CEO of Major Drilling, and Andrew McLaughlin, the company's Vice President of Legal Affairs and General Counsel. And the subject of that conversation was the importance of initial public offerings or having companies, more companies in Atlantic Canada, go public and actually become listed on a stock exchange either in Canada or the United States. So I guess right out of the gate, I'd like to ask your thoughts on that topic and why it's important uh, to our general theme here of of economic development and prosperity in Atlantic Canada.
1: Well, I think it's important for a bunch of reasons, uh, David. I mean, we have very few publicly traded companies in this region, probably uh, proportionally lower than other parts of the country. And we can talk about maybe some of the reasons for that. But uh, if you take a look at the ones that, uh, that are kind of top of mind, uh, obviously we have uh, uh, major drilling. We have Clearwater in, uh, that went public a number of years ago. Um, but there are not a lot of other companies uh, that come to mind. They're, you know, It's only a handful. Um, and uh, the benefit, of course, of, of having uh, publicly traded companies uh, headquartered in this region is... Uh, kind of twofold. One, it creates a, a head office jobs, many of them very well paying, to run national or international companies such as Major Drilling. Um, and uh, the other, the other uh, thing that it does is it it, it shines a, a spotlight on the region as a, an opportunity um, uh, for other companies to consider locating here. So having a high profile company like Major Drilling. You know it 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 gives people uh, thinking about locating uh, relocating or or building businesses here maybe more confidence that this would be a good place uh, to do business.
0: Yeah, and we chose major drilling specifically for two reasons. one because it is uh, a good example of the the value of taking a company public. They were a small uh, New Brunswick based firm that actually did. A little bit of this their business here in Canada, and after going public, they had access to the capital markets and were able to acquire firms and grow all around the world. And now they're the largest or one of the largest players in their sector globally, uh, based here in Moncton. And as you said, have a full head office complement and a lot of high paid talent right here in Atlantic Canada. Um, I just I wanted to ask you uh, a Um, Just a question specifically about access to capital, because we do have increasingly, and we've talked about it on this podcast, we have um, a number of our high growth firms have been bought out by national and international firms uh, um, across the region. Of course, the big one, a billion dollar buyout recently in, uh, in Newfoundland's IT sector And so Denny and uh, Andrew were suggesting that some of those firms, as opposed to selling out to another firm, could have possibly gone public, raised similar capital, but then the head office and the control of the company remains in the local community, whether it's St. John's or Halifax or Moncton. So what are your thoughts on that in terms of uh, IPOs as a form of uh, maintaining uh, control, the locus of control in the head office here? In Atlantic Canada,
1: well, it's, I think it's uh, in a funny way. It's like um, it's like uh, building buildings. You know, some people build them to sell them, some people build them to rent them, and uh, it's a funny analogy. But if you go public, you're you're basically uh, owning the company for the long term, and 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 keeping it in in the control of the. Uh, the, the, the people who have probably started it. Uh, there's a lot of people, as you know, in this region, especially in the IT sector, who are building to sell. That is their that is their goal. Get it to a certain scale and get somebody else to buy it. And, and they really, I, I don't think they really care where it ends up once they sell it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been some good examples of that <clears throat> in this region, obviously, and it's not a bad strategy. I don't have a problem with that. But, the, you know, if we really want to build a strong economy over the long run, I think we need more companies that are publicly traded in this region. It just gives us more credibility as, as a really, uh, you know, an important part of the Canadian economy. Right now, we're honestly, we're a bit of a backwater in many ways from investors or, or you know, just people, the way they look at this region and you know, it, it is a matter of c- credibility. We have some, we have some strong players. There may be others that do it over time. I mean, you know, maybe there'll be a Cook Agriculture IPO at some point. But I can't imagine them relocating. Uh, uh, you know, they're going to they're going to continue to operate uh, their headquarters from here, which would be good. And uh, I'm not suggesting they're doing that, by the way, for anybody listening. But I think that <laughs> at some point they might consider it as a way to get more. Access to capital, as you mentioned, because they're they're going worldwide, they're 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 going international, and their potential is enormous. Uh, so, if you want to get large uh, amounts of capital to fund expansion, uh, certainly IPOs are a good way to go. Now, I remember talking to um, Colin McDonald when um, Clearwater went um, did their IPO years ago, and uh, several years after that. One of the things he told me is that it was so hard to do the regulatory stuff. It just took so much money and time to, you know, abide by the regulations and to file, you know, information. And he found it frustrating, I think. And, and, it, and, and I, I read into this, I might be wrong, but it just, it took away from their focus a little bit. spent so much time in the regulatory stuff, the complying, that um, you know, uh, it, it was frustrating for him. Now, it, it, it certainly worked out for Clearwater, and um, as you know, it was recently purchased by um, by uh, some native uh, bands um, in Nova Scotia, which um, which is a good thing as well. But uh, it still remains uh, largely controlled by Atlantic Canadians. So, and it will be for the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah. So we had this discussion with uh, Denny and Andrew, this issue of the regulatory burden and the stresses and the, the additional reporting required if you're a publicly traded company. And Denny had suggested he's constantly he probably spends a third of his time on that, on uh, shareholder relations uh, and that type of activity. But I think both of them indicated, though, that it makes you a sharper company. Because you are forced to, so there's benefits and negatives, but in general, you are forced to be more rigorous in how you develop strategy. You have shareholders that are holding your feet to the fire. Many of these companies have larger individual shareholders uh, that are specifically, whether they're pension funds or others that are that that you know that are very active in terms of their engagement. And then there were other things like environmental, social, and governance or ESG initiatives that there's more. Um, Impetus for publicly traded companies uh, to do something in the ESG area compared to maybe privately held companies. So, my general concern in this region is that a lot of our industries are quite unproductive if you measure per- productivity by GDP per lit- hour worked and so on. And I worry that some of those sectors, uh, the reason is that we don't have any more publicly traded companies because they're not, you know, maybe as sharp or, or, but by the way, they don't have the scale because larger firms tend to be more productive as a general rule. Now there's some diseconomies of scale over time. So what do you think about that? Do you think that the benefits of being a public attribute not for everybody, but for certain, if you could pick off a number of firms, are the benefits uh, uh, potentially outweighing those potential costs that you talked about earlier?
1: I, I, I believe they are, they do outweigh the, the cost. Uh, you know, it, it's a question of governance and, um, uh, the discipline of having um, uh, an independent board made up of most of the most um, the largest investors in the company, you know, provides you with a certain um, scrutiny um, that you don't get when you run your own company. Now, some companies try to get around that by having their own sort of uh, internal board um, of advisors or even a former board of directors. It helps, but when you're publicly traded, you're 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 really judged by a different standard completely, and um, I I think the scrutiny is way higher, and and but you also get access to learnings that you you wouldn't get otherwise, and you get better as a result of being compared to a higher standard. You know, uh, I kind of it's kind of reminded me a little bit about when I was building my company. I, I never once. Uh, judge the company's performance by what was being done in the region. I always looked at national competitors as comparators for me, and that, that was my benchmark. And a lot of people make the mistake of judging themselves against their local competitors rather than national competitors. And you, you can only get better by going at the highest performing companies in your sector, regardless of where they are. And I think that's what publicly traded companies um, have as an advantage of being public.
0: So last question, Don, I know you're a little bit skeptical of government economic development efforts, and I share that to some extent, but what do you think there's anything government can do to encourage more publicly traded companies? Could Should they, I'm not suggesting they water down the rules, but could, they, is, could there be tax incentives or other things, or could they just sort of create more awareness around the potential of this source of capital? Or what what do you think, if any, the role of government should be here?
1: Uh, I think, uh, honestly, I think government should stay out of this. This is a, this is a private sector decision. I think that uh, maybe doing podcasts like this uh, help people uh, aware of, of the option of becoming an IPO uh, over some period of time. But, you know, uh, mainly it's a question of scale, isn't it? Uh, if you're at, at that turning point of going from small, medium to large, uh, I think that that's when you, you, you really need to consider, um, you know, issues like access to capital and what's the best way to get some of your e- equity out of the company without giving up control of the company. That's the, it's a decision-making process. I mean, in my business, I never got that big, but, but you know, I, I, dreamed of the day that I might, <laughs> you know, so, um, no, I think that this is not a government uh, responsibility. This is really, uh, you know, we need more entrepreneurs, uh, uh, Making the decision to do this and being successful at it, and building, you know, long-term um, corporate headquarters um, here as a result of going public. So, I think we're going to see uh, more of them because uh, some of the IT startups, uh, you know, people might get to the point of saying, "You know what? Um, I like what I'm doing. I want to do it for a long time, but i need I need more resources to do what I want to accomplish." And they're not selling to the region, right? They're selling to other markets everywhere. and they But they see, you know, operating out of Atlantic Canada as, as an advantage. And I think we're going to see, and we talked about this before, it's going to be an advantage to attract people, I believe, uh, that were located in Atlantic Canada. Lifestyle, you know, health health issues, security, all those things are starting to, uh, you know, lean towards Atlantic Canada in a way it hasn't before the pandemic. So I, I actually think that there's going to be growing opportunities for companies to either stay here or relocate here and operate their companies out of this region.
0: So here's my conversation with Denny LaRocque and Andrew McLaughlin from Major Drilling. So Danny and Andy, it's really great to have you on the Insights podcast. This is a podcast focused on uh, how do we build a strong and sustainable Atlantic Canada over the next 20 or 30 years. We've talked to some of the top CEOs in the region We've talked to many thought leaders, uh, many experts, and so we're really excited today to talk to you a little bit about the importance of publicly traded companies, and do we need more of them in New Brunswick and in Atlantic Canada? What what benefits would it bring uh, if we had more publicly traded companies, uh, companies listed uh, on stock exchanges? So we're going to start with that, and I think maybe we should start here by setting the table. We don't have that many publicly traded companies in New Brunswick or even across the region. Do we know how many TSX venture in the US and where would uh, where would I find this information? And maybe Andy, you can uh, pick that question up.
2: Sure. Thanks so much, David, for the invite. It's a, It's a real pleasure to be here today. So I'd say a good starting point for this question. Is the TSX website itself. They, uh, they publish a listing of all the publicly traded companies on that stock exchange. So talking here about both the, the TSX, the main one, and also the Toronto, uh, the TSX Venture Exchange. So you can actually sort by their published list. You can sort by headquarters locations. And on a quick search, uh, you can see that there are only three New Brunswick headquartered companies on the TSX. And there's an additional three on the TSX Venture Exchange. So if we just focus on those three on the main exchange on the TSX, you'll see Major Drilling Group International Inc. So the uh, the stock ticker is MDI, and that's where both Denis and I work. And we're a we're a Moncton-based global drilling services provider to the mining industry. The next one is is Plaza Retail REIT. Uh, they are Fredericton-based real estate developer, owner, and manager. And then the third one is Organigram Holdings Inc. A Moncton-based cannabis producer. Now, I guess in terms of a, a quick look at this, it does appear that the ratio of public versus private companies in New Brunswick is notably lower than, than Canada as a whole. And I'd say just by way of example, we take a look at uh, Nova Scotia, just next door. know, this is a province that has only a slightly larger population than New Brunswick. They have 13 TSX listed companies, and they have 16 on the venture exchange. And it seems that the, the comparisons only get bleaker as you start to move west. Now, I'd note that regarding those three companies in New Brunswick that I mentioned, I, I'd say that each of their leadership teams would have had their own reasons for going public at, at specific junctures in their company's life cycles. So, for example, take organogram. They were part of that wave of Canadian marijuana producers that, that capitalized on legalization back in 2018, as you'll recall. And they in their case, they had to rely on equity through the public markets to fund their rapid growth because the banks were essentially shying away from the cannabis space at that time. And I know in terms of major drilling story, Denis is going to get into that a little bit later and ours goes back a a number of years. But to the question of, you know, why don't we have more public companies here in New Brunswick? I think first, David, we, we have to take a bit of a step back and look at the economic landscape here more generally. I'd say that you know, at, at the macro level, the narrative about the New Brunswick economy—it's remained largely unchanged for over half a century. It's a—it's a story that's that's dominated by a few family-run titans, a slate of quietly successful private companies, and, and a host of small businesses and, and service companies of varying sizes. And it's all set against this backdrop of a relatively undynamic, resource-based economy. And I think if you were to take a snapshot of today's economic landscape. You'd see it, it fits squarely into this story that I'm talking about. You know, you've got the privately held Irving and McCain groups of companies that are towering at the top of all of this. Uh, you've got a company like Cook Aquaculture, another family run, privately held company that's grown dr- dramatically through a series of recent acquisitions. You have some privately held hidden gems uh, across the province in, in a number of different sectors. And then you've got this sort of modest ground level made up of, of startups, small businesses. And a small services sector, and, and I think when you're looking at that picture, what seems to be missing from this story is that that middle layer that can expand into this titan status. So here I'm talking about companies with you know 200 million in revenue uh, that can grow up to about a, the the billion dollar mark. And I'd say that it's this layer of companies that are the the drivers of wealth creation and economic dynamism in other provinces. And it's this realm where public companies. Uh, can play a particularly prominent role. So it's it's my take that this is where New Brunswick's middle layer deficit comes into a, a real sharp relief. Um, so with that that context in mind, you know it's it's brought this question to, for for me. Why don't we have more public companies here in New Brunswick? And, and, and just briefly, here, David, uh, we had a had a number of conversations with business leaders, academics, and and some other folks. And a few reasons popped up in those discussions. And I'll just highlight those uh, briefly. Uh, the first one you know it's almost like a catch-22 scenario here in New Brunswick the number of people with with public company exposure and experience is very low because of the low number of public companies here almost no one knows what it's like to go public so it's not on anyone's radar you know for, for most entrepreneurs it's not part of their experience it's not part of their network it's it's not even part of their lexicon the next point I'd flag and it's a related point you know even if a company went public in New Brunswick where would they source? experienced C-suite operators and, and the necessary advisors with that type of expertise that you need. Uh, there are only a handful of each of those with public company experience in New Brunswick and they already have jobs. So there's a line of thinking that you know you'd have to look elsewhere. You'd have to pay a premium uh, to move people from another province or country. Uh, a third factor that's come up in discussions, New Brunswick businesses are very private uh, about their financial information and there's a certain humility embedded in our culture. And I'd say that you know, while these traits may be endearing to the rest of the country, they can be in direct conflict with the requirements of public companies in terms of you know, having to open, lift up the hood and publish quarterly earnings reports, disclosures, and uh, on things like uh, the salaries of the suite, C-suite, for example. And the last point I'll flag, David, uh, is you know, over the past couple of decades, the barometer for corporate success here in New Brunswick has been measured largely by these exits to large multinational buyers. But what if these New Brunswick success stories had gone public instead of becoming divisions or branch locations? You know, why did those companies choose to sell while similar companies in other areas of Canada might have opted to go public? Does the lack of public companies in New Brunswick contribute to our economic stagnation? Or is it the fact that, you know, our economic stagnation plays a role in impeding the creation of of public companies? So these are some of the questions that I've been uh, sort of pondering uh, in looking at
0: this. And We're going to dig into those a little deeper. I mean, I know that Jerry Pond, who's sort of the Dean of the IT sector in New Brunswick and has been involved in many of the exits that you talked about, has said publicly that he'd like to see a billion dollar company in the IT sector that's based here, that goes public, that files an initial public offering or IPO. Uh, but I think when the big multinationals come dangling the cash at multiples of 20 times uh, revenue or 15 times revenue, uh, sometimes it's too uh, too lucrative for the uh, entrepreneurs to to um, to turn away. But we'll come back to that when we talk about the benefits a little later. For, for now, I'm going to turn it to Denny and have you tell us about Major Drilling uh, and specifically why it went public. There was a whole generation of Acadian entrepreneurs. I think you, you, that it's part of that quiet group that you talked about earlier, Andy. Um, and for some reason, Ronald Gogan took this company public, right? Uh, mm-hmm. maybe you could tell us a little bit that story but why would he do was there something about the mining industry was there something about the sector uh or his temperament that um that led to to taking the company public so if you could tell us that story that would be great
3: yeah well i mean just a, a quick uh history uh major drilling started in in 1980 uh and really it's when uh ron gogan bought uh a company with a few drills uh, operating in the Bathurst area with the Brunswick mine that was just starting to boom. And with that boom, he, he, he made it big. And, um, and then the company grew from there, and he bought a company in, in a couple of companies in Quebec, and it became the, the major drilling uh, running that through the early 90s. And then in the early 90s, Customers started to ask us to go uh, international, to go in Mexico, go in Venezuela, which meant, you know, buying rigs uh, and, you know, needed capital. And the first few um, expansions were financed, you know, with debt and with just finding cash here and there. Uh, But that that demand from international or from uh, big mining companies kept growing to the point where we needed more and that's where the company in 1995 uh, decided to go public uh, to I mean Ron took the company public to go raise uh, capital to finance that expansion which allowed us to then expand into a few more countries and uh, uh, make acquisitions which Really help basically mold the company to you know get it to where where it is today, and um, and and again the the reason to go public was as a means of financing, um, uh, and also for Ron uh, he, he took some money off the table as well. So there's there's both sides here uh, when companies go public. There's the there's uh, taking money off the table, but also as a means of, of uh, growth for uh, for your operations.
0: So you use some of that capital for acquisitions as well, not just uh, organic growth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're saying it would have been much harder to try and bootstrap that using other sources of capital.
3: Well, especially and uh, again, you go back go back to 1994, 95. Companies operating internationally wasn't uh, the norm. In fact, I I, uh, I was traveling at the time, and I'd get on the plane, and I'd tell people I was heading down to to Argentina, and people would look at me, and go, "Whoa!" And then these days, you get on the plane, and uh, and half of the plane you talk to, they're heading to Brazil, and the other ones going to Europe, and going. So it's now part of. So at that time, going to a bank uh, and saying I want to finance a project in Argentina. Uh, was quite hard, so so that's another reason why going public made it. Uh, the public markets were, especially in the mining sector, were a lot more used to that and a lot more receptive to growth plans in, in internationally.
0: So I don't want to undercut Andy's argument here before we even get started. But if you were doing it today, are you saying you wouldn't take the company public?
3: no i I think it's still it's still uh, a means of capital it all depends i mean uh the um uh, what you need and what uh what the conditions are Um, but there's a lot of projects expansion projects that are still hard to finance with banks traditional banks and that you know where the risk uh banks are risk adverse by definition whereas uh in the public market you might be able to raise uh to find people that have uh, are more aligned in terms of their uh, their risk uh with uh, with your with your your vision and uh so yes there is certainly uh a, a room for for um for public uh, for a company to, to go public
0: So maybe, Andy, then uh, you wrote a paper here, a very interesting paper called Hunting for IPOs, an Elusive Species in New Brunswick's Economic Ecosystem. Uh, You've obviously put a lot of effort into that. Why don't you tell us now what is the case for going public?
2: Sure. Thanks, David. So if you're a private company on a growth path, and this is something we're discussing here is you need that access to capital. That's the lifeblood. So how do you get it? And and we've spoken uh, about a few of the avenues here. You know, you can fuel growth organically by taking on more business. Uh, You can fuel growth through venture capital and private equity by taking on bank debt, uh, by tapping into government subsidies and grants. But there's also this option of an initial public offering of your company's shares. So the the big question is, you know, why would you want to do an IPO? Uh, With an an IPO, you get a potentially massive interest-free capital infusion that can be deployed across all facets of your business, so R&D, CapEx, staffing, etc. And this can be an extremely powerful vehicle for firms that need to raise substantial capital to fuel rapid growth. Uh, you also get liquidity for a company's longstanding shareholders who may be looking to cash out. Once you're public, uh, you can use your company's shares for growth. And I'll just note here, uh, as major drilling, we recently, we recently used shares as part of the purchase price for an acquisition in Australia. Uh, There's also an employee incentive angle with stock option grants. And I think more broadly, going public brings a potential for heightened public awareness, profile uh, and reputation, which can help spur market share growth.
0: So do you think that, just on that last point, do you think that publicly traded companies are because of that transparency or that openness are actually better positioned for growth than private companies as a general rule?
3: I, I would say that, uh, yes, because it's, e- you've got easier access to capital. Uh, as Andy mentioned, we just made an acquisition in Australia and, and, uh, having our shares, uh, being public, it's, it's, uh, given, a, it gave us an extra kind of tool in our toolbox when it came to negotiation. And also we didn't have to, we didn't have to necessarily uh, get our, our banks involved. We and we had a um, a currency that the owner of uh, the owner of the company we were acquiring was in the same type of business, and he liked our company, and therefore uh, he, he liked the fact that he was getting shares of a much bigger company uh, for his company. So he still was still. Staying in the industry at the same time, uh, kind of offloading uh, all his, his responsibilities on the day-to-day operation of, of a company. So, so yeah, being being public, I would say, gives you more tools in your toolbox in terms of financing, and also being uh, quickly, you can do deals much quicker, uh, just because you've got that that financing aspect, uh, uh, an extra tool in your financing uh, toolbox.
0: Right. But Andy, you in your paper and sort of in the conversations we've had, you also mentioned this idea of rigor in the sense that being publicly traded forces you to be more um, in tune to the investors, more rigorous maybe in your management and your strategy than if you're privately held and it's kind of at the whim of maybe the owner or or the the single entrepreneur do you want to talk a little bit about that before we move on to the to some other questions here
2: yeah well sure i mean i think we can speak to to some of the real the challenges uh with with, uh with going public uh you mentioned that sort of that that public scrutiny and i think there are a number of things that we have to obviously highlight here and and if you're considering going public you have to go in with your eyes wide open so i'll I'll go through just a couple of some of the the challenges that I've identified. Uh, the first one is that it's expensive. You know, in, in the world of IPOs, it takes a lot of money up front to access public market money. All kinds of initial fees and there are dealer commissions, et cetera. And these can be in, you know, in the range of six to 10% of the value of the security sold. So the amount of money going out the door right at the front end can be staggering. And then once you're listed, a public company will have ongoing legal and accounting fees related to the reporting requirements that you were mentioning. So obviously a cost benefit analysis right at the front end is is central to all of this. A related point is that it's it's resource intensive. Uh, There's a significant administrative burden involved in meeting these ongoing disclosure and reporting requirements. And it relies on a specialized expertise. So CEOs like Denis, uh, CEOs of public companies, dedicate upwards of 30% of their productive time tending to the unique needs of being a public company. So this includes things like meeting with analysts and ongoing investor relations. I know just before our discussion here, Denny was on one of these calls. uh, So he can definitely relate to that stat, I'm sure. Uh, There's also this question about a loss of control. Uh, You know, by disseminating company ownership across hundreds, if not thousands of shareholders through an IPO, executive leaders, they may fear that they're gonna be losing control over the vision, the direction and the management of the business. Uh, The next thing I'd mention is short-termism, and we're hearing a lot more about that uh, as of late, I'd say. Public companies are are required to publish publish their results on a quarterly basis. So this increases that, that pressure to demonstrate results for that period. And I'd say that this pressure often results in public companies managing on a quarter to quarter basis, potentially to the detriment of longer term planning and growth. Uh, another point I'll flag here, you know, if, if an IPO flops, it can land a devastating and potentially fatal blow to a company. So, one of the one of the people I spoke with, uh, he said that the pursuit of an IPO is akin to embarking across an ice road. I thought that was a bit of an interesting metaphor. Uh, he mentioned, you know, you'd be you'd better be fully prepared to make the precarious cross uh, across that ice road and, and be, be able to survive on the other side all while knowing that one misstep could land you in a crevasse. So that, that was sort of an interesting way to think about it. Uh, and the last point I'll say here, you know, there are a number of seemingly less painful alternatives to access funds in the capital markets ecosystem. In, in recent years, private equity has pulled out ahead of the pack in many instances, uh, and we're still seeing those, th- that trend to this day. Uh, and, and perhaps recent experience with unusually low interest rates is helping prop up this trend, at least for the time being, although we know even there there might be some some movements afoot. I know Denise wants to make a point here, so I'll let him Yeah, jump in. Uh,
3: the, the, just one other point that um, uh, being public, uh, going public for private owners that I know sometimes is, is tough is all this disclosure means you need to take your pants down. It's to your competitors, to your customers and uh that's not always easy because you need to sometimes it's a and and we're having that debate right now we're we're growing and our investors are expecting us uh to talk about our growth plans and talk about how much price increase we're gonna have well when we go on the on the record uh we're talking not only to our investors but we know our customers are listening so it's kind of and our competitors so you're you're basically having to walk the fine line when you're trying to explain what you're doing on your price increase without telling too much to your competitors and your customers and it's that um that whole uh, uh disclosure aspect where as a public as a private company you wouldn't have to deal with all of that so that's another aspect that Going public, you need to be you need to be conscious of, and, and depending on the industry, also uh, it can it 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 can hamper your your the, the or it can modify the way you operate.
2: Yeah, and, and, yeah. and I'll just Dave, I'll just mention you know we've we've mentioned all kinds of uh, disadvantages or challenges here, uh, but I would just sort of uh, finalize this point by saying that you know proponents of going public would argue that all of these disadvantages still pale in comparison to the potential growth opportunities of an IPO. And they would obviously bring a lot of real-life examples uh, to back up this claim. But no doubt, there, there are a lot of challenges.
0: Uh, so of so I just, I wanted to ask Denise specifically about your industry. You talked about the difference by industry. Mining is notoriously cyclical or volatile. Does it does do your investors understand that and accept that you're going to get these sort of peaks and valleys, or when you're in the valley, are you under that much more scrutiny, that much more pressure to cut costs and and make other kinds of changes?
3: yeah, no the the key is the communication and and uh, and one thing, and I, I think, one thing we're, we're known for is to tell it like it is, and I think that's the best approach for public companies. You've got promoters out there that will sugarcoat things. Uh, that doesn't get you anywhere because investors, especially when you're dealing with mutual funds, they're smart. They deal with hundreds of companies, and they they can sniff out, uh, you know, who's who's. Uh, uh, you know, BSing and who's not. And uh, so, so what happens if, if you're seen as a promoter, then there's a discount applied to your share price and, uh, and they discount a lot of what you say. So, so we've been known to, to, to tell it like it is. And therefore, our investors understand that, yes, we are cyclical. They understand, um, Basically, when things are, are, are going down in our industry, we don't need to tell them because we've already educated uh, them to what drives our business. So they see the signs sometimes even before we do, because they are a lot of time they are involved in financing our customers. And they know even before we do that uh, the financing is drying up, whereas we only find out once the money runs out for at, at our customers level. Um so, so from that perspective, I would say if you do a good job of communicating, then that pressure is not necessarily uh gonna be harder on you. Um from uh you, you always have the few investors out there that are uneducated that basically buy your shares just because they heard and, and then they wonder why your share is down and they think it's all about you. Whereas for us, gold and copper prices drive our, a lot of our share price, and when gold is down uh, quite a bit in a day, our share is going down. I guarantee you that, and we could be running the best company. So sometimes it, 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 you do have those, but for the most part, I would say if you do a good job on communication, then the investors will uh, will respond.
0: So Andy, uh, Andy I was in gov- when I was in government uh, at the Jobs Board of Secretariat. I was in a meeting with deputy ministers. And we were talking about this trend of our IT or tech companies being acquired by other firms. And one of the deputies said at the time, why aren't our firms acquiring more firms outside Hmm. the province? And in fact, we had looked at, are there tax incentives? Are there ways that we could uh, use public policy to actually encourage more acquisitions from here? Because I think, as you said in your introductory remarks, we're missing that layer of uh larger but not very large firms right the 200 million 300 million uh uh, based here and growing globally so we have a few in the private as you said like cook aquaculture but we have very few in the public uh publicly traded realm so i wanted to ask you what would could be the potential benefits to new brunswick uh if we saw more public uh public companies based here
2: sure so i'll start by saying you know if done right i could envision a Number of benefits, and I'll name a few. So, take human capital for example. Uh, running a public company requires skill sets that aren't mandatory in the private world, and I'll, I'll give you a few examples why. Uh, number one, there are very stringent board and corporate governance practices uh, for public companies. Uh, a quick footnote here I would say that our, our friends at Rogers are currently showing that's not always the case with public companies, but generally speaking, that is the case. Uh, the next piece, th- th- there's a stringent level of internal controls over financial reporting, risk management, and tax planning. You know, you have to be able to deal with the, the elevated visibility of being a publicly traded uh, company. And you have to have a deep knowledge in, in connections in the capital market. So I'd say that, you know, adding this diversity of talent and skills to the labor pool in New Brunswick would be a positive thing for the, the whole economy. And this could help us start to build a, a bit of a public company cadre, a talent pool uh, here here in New Brunswick. The next benefit I'll flag is performance culture. So as, as you know, David, public companies must perform or, or or die. So quarterly reporting requirements create an environment of accountability. If a management team becomes complacent, it, it'll show in the quarterly earnings reports and the stock price and uh, stock price and the analyst reports. So this this cause and effect relationship, it's obvious. it's it's direct. And I think an injection of this performance culture that I'm talking about and an, an injection of this into the province would, would be healthy. Uh, and the next point I'll say is that I think it would bring a much needed diversity to our economic ecosystem and landscape. You know, it's my belief that, that the more interesting, vibrant, dynamic, the economic landscape of a jurisdiction, the more attractive it is to, uh, to professionals who are looking to relocate here. So th- those are some of the, the benefits that I've identified.
0: So, what do you say, Denis? Do you agree with that? Is that uh, basically the benefits of uh, taking uh, trying to foster more public companies?
3: Yeah, and, and an additional one into the example or the the example you said uh, of that person saying, "Why aren't our companies buying?" and and the point we talked about earlier about having that tool in your toolbox, and why I would say probably one of the reason is that they don't have necessarily that tool. And if you're competing, and especially in the IT world, I'm sure that when there's an acquisition, you're not the only one that's competing. It's it's uh, it's probably an auction or, or there's other players. And if that other player is a public company, I guarantee you they can pay a higher multiple than a private would just because of the financing aspect. They're better equipped to finance the transaction. And therefore, that's where... Uh, probably some deals get missed maybe I'm, I'm you know i haven't been part but i'm just assuming that there are deals that are get missed just because of the financing aspect where uh you you, you know it's worth that but financing it uh, it might not be as easy as again if you had the the shares to offer as a, as a currency on that transaction and that's that probably explains why we're not building those 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 big players in in uh, in Atlantic Canada.
0: So Andy, I wanted to ask you about your paper again because what is the premise? Are you do you have ideas or thoughts on how we could actually stimulate that or promote that or actually do things that could actually lead to more publicly traded companies uh, based here? Like how do you actually if, if, it, if you're making your case and you've made a good idea, then what's next? Like, what do we actually do about it?
2: Sure. Yeah. Happy to speak to that. I'll start by saying that, you know, by, by no means am I saying that going public is a silver bullet uh, and there's no one formula that works for every company in, in determining whether and when to go public. It, as we've mentioned here today, it's, it's a highly risky endeavor, uh, but in the right set of circumstances for growing companies it should at least be on the radar. So that's the premise of the paper. Uh, So who might fit this bill? Uh, I would say businesses that require a rapid capital raise in the range of 20 to 30 million, and they will have this continuous thirst for capital over the short, medium, and and potentially long-term. So they'll be coming back uh, for additional raises. The next, you know, there should be a a, a really compelling business premise that's attractive to the public market investment community. It's got to be a compelling story. And finally, uh, I think it goes with the question that they'll have to have a high tolerance for, for risk. Now, I'd wager that New Brunswick has a handful of companies that, that meet these criteria. And my sense is that for these companies, you know, objectively speaking, going public might make a lot of economic sense, but they may not have been considering it as an option, while their competitors and colleagues in places like Toronto, Calgary, and Halifax most likely would. So this is, this is the crux of the issue. Um, And so how, uh, to the next part of your question, how do we get this on the radar in New Brunswick? So in the paper, I talk about a a two-pronged approach. The first one being the development of an IPO incubator network. And then secondly, coupling this effort with enhancements to the regulatory landscape to make the province a more attractive jurisdiction to set up a public company. So what might this actually look like? I'd say, you know, first of all, We'd want to actively identify companies that might fit this public company profile. So this could start with hunting down half a dozen candidates with IPO potential. Next, we'd want to uh, think about linking them up with mentorship and professional networks to teach and nurture these companies in the pursuit of an IPO. Folks who have been through it, who understand the landscape, folks like Denis, who, who, who have that first-hand experience. And then I'd say with lots of support, we would want these companies to go through a, a one to two year trial process, almost like a si- simulation, you know, acting like a public company to gain firsthand experience of what it's actually like and to help smooth the transition should uh, these companies ultimately want to take the leap. So this process could involve issuing quarterly financial statements and disclosures, ensuring compliance with public company reporting standards and establishing a quarterly board and, and committee meeting rhythm. and also. This whole point around sort of uh, board independence, and now just quickly on on the second prong, uh, I would recommend the government take a look at uh, doing an analysis of the current regulatory and tax landscape, and identifying measures and programs that could help incentivize early adopters and their investors to, to encourage an IPO and to think about mechanisms you know similar to the the, the small business tax credit regime, for example, uh, flow through shares as another model. Uh, various mechanisms that could help incentivize this process. Now, I'd say that given the catch-22 scenario we're currently in in New Brunswick, you know, if we don't actively pursue this agenda, it's not likely to just happen organically. Uh, I think if proactive efforts could result in coaxing even one or two companies per year across this ice road that we spoke about earlier to a successful IPO, uh, my thinking is this could actually create a domino effect on New Brunswick's economic landscape, and we could finally start chipping away at, the, at our uh, middle layer deficit that, w- that we've been speaking about. And I would say that now, now is the time to start the hunt for these companies and to, to start laying this necessary groundwork to help prospective companies uh, succeed in their journey.
0: So you mentioned earlier, though, this new focus on venture capital or on uh, other uh, private equity. Um, and that does seem to be the 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 sort of new focus, particularly around tech companies. Now we can talk about the manufacturers and the resource companies and so on, because that there may be a difference there uh, in terms of the profile. But on the tech side, there's very little talk that I, you know, that I'm involved in about these companies that have high growth potential thinking about IPOs. It's almost routine that they're trying to get to a point at which some big firm is going to come in and gobble them up and then they cash out after two or three years after their vesting period or whatever, and then they start something else. Right. This is the sort of trend that's happened here. But the problem is the locus of control shifts. So, yes, many of these firms continue to stay in New Brunswick and they continue to employ people here, but there's very few head office jobs. There's very few. The decision making is not here anymore. Uh, So I think there's a lot of good sort of tangible benefits, at least on paper, from trying to encourage more IPOs and having more head offices like major uh, drilling here, uh, but I, I, yeah, the challenge is how do we actually stimulate that? And I think you've laid out in your paper and today um, uh, a good roadmap for that. I wanted to ask you a little bit about ESG because you are that's one of your uh, another one of your personal um, areas of interest. This is environmental, social, and governance. Uh, uh, the rigor that that now is is taking public companies, but it's even filtering into all sectors of the economy. Uh, there's this real focus from the from investors, but also from the public that companies, um, you know, do good while they're trying to make a, a return for their uh, for the investment of their um, shareholders or owners. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about ESG in the context of being a public company? Does it help? Does it hurt? How, how are you guys working? How's that happening in major drilling?
2: Sure. Thanks, David. I'm really happy to get that that question. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of work over the past two years at Major Drilling in this area, and we've been getting some great traction on these efforts. And I'll, I'll say that even recently, uh, the past couple of weeks, I presented to a group of, uh, there were 30 chief legal officers of Washington, D.C., headquartered businesses. Uh, and I spoke with them uh, about Major Drilling's ESG journey thus far. And all of these companies were feeling the pressure to do more on ESG. So it was, it was a really interesting question. But I, before I get ahead of myself, I think the first question is, so what is ESG? Um, From my perspective, ESG, it's a set of factors aimed at measuring a company's sustainability performance in the three key areas. So uh, the first one, environmental, the E in ESG. So here you can think about things like responsible water consumption, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and and protection of biodiversity. For the S, that's social. So here you can think about business relationships with local communities where you operate, uh, employee health and safety, which is a really important one here at Major Drilling. Uh, indigenous engagement and partnerships, uh, and then G, governance. So here you can think about matters relating to to corporate leadership, efficacy of the board of directors, anti-corruption and and internal controls. And I'd say that since joining the company uh, six years ago, I've, I've witnessed this growing and undeniable momentum of the focus on ESG in the public markets. So for us, I would say that ESG came on strong onto our radar just about a couple of years ago. Uh, and while we already had many of the underlying ESG p- pieces well entrenched in our company, and particularly on the health and safety side, as I mentioned, our challenge was to formalize our efforts under an overarching ESG framework that could apply across our global operations and that was built for our particular operating environment and context. And our tipping point on ESG, I would say, was just about a year and a half, year and a half ago. I can recall having lunch with Denis just up the road here, and we talked about how you know we've got to make some headway. On this topic, uh, it came out of that discussion that I would, I would lead our efforts on ESG. And shortly thereafter, I presented a, a draft ESG framework to our board of directors that was approved in June of 2020. And we've been working away at implementation ever since. And I'd say that now in, we're into late 2021, you know, a, an investor call or pitch to a potential client without an ESG angle would be almost unheard of. Um, so, so I'll make just a couple of com- concluding concluding points on my side. Um, you know, I- embarking on this ESG journey in the midst of a global pandemic means we, we've had to quickly fo- uh, shift over to the fast lane. You know, the, the role of the corporation, the purpose of the corporation, th- these topics have come under much deeper focus in the COVID era. So I'm thinking about things like employee safety and well-being, diversity and, and fair wages. And I'd say that if there are companies out there that are, navigating the world based purely on financial performance and metrics, they're bound to get blindsided in today's reality. You know, we need to view the, the world with a broader lens. It's not just spreadsheets and numbers. We have to have this this broader context and business culture in mind. So in other words, we need to strongly consider ESG factors not only to survive, but to, to thrive in today's world. And I'm convinced that embedding what, what I call a, a ESG-minded culture, it's gonna be ever more important going forward. So I think it's it's absolutely central to employee recruitment and retention efforts. You can think about all the new employees who are joining the workforce. Uh, you know they want their employer's values to be aligned with their own. And I'm thinking about things like fighting climate change, this ESG-minded culture. It's going to be central in being able to meet customer demands, as customers are going to expect it. Uh, it's also central in being able to access capital, as lenders are going to demand it. And we're seeing more of that right now. And uh, we'll see what comes out of this this COP 26. Uh, I'd say that this ESG-minded culture, it's also crucial in maintaining that ever-important social license to operate. And, and most importantly, I'll just say, it, it's the right thing to do. So I'll conclude on that point, David, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a very quickly evolving area and it's one that's uh, being considered a lot more part of the core operations uh, for businesses. And I think that's the real difference from uh, sort of the, the CSR or corporate social responsibility uh, efforts of, of years ago uh, where it was a bit more of a philanthropic thing that was done on the side, off the side of the desk. Well, now ESG is really baked into the to, to the core operations of what you do and how you do it.
0: Can you still make a buck? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but sometimes, right? If you're talking about greening your energy mix or or doing other kinds of things, like it, it can actually have an impact on the bottom line. It's not just uh, it's not just superficial in these some of these cases.
3: You're right, but um. I mean, it comes down to the, your corporate purpose and and doing the right thing and and um in when when you start with that frame of that frame of mind, it drives a lot of the things you do, and and you you say you know financially a lot of things are not necessarily you do not have a lot of financial um financial impact it. It's more about how you run the business how you make your decisions and if you if you take the impact on the communities and or your employees or in your decision making and that's part of how you make decisions then you're doing a good job on esg and it's not all about money but sure there is some part about money but the nice thing for us at least the mining industry has really been at the forefront of ESG and our customers are demanding it. So we're seeing it even as, as a competitive advantage. The fact that we're investing in water recirculation because we use a lot of water when we're drilling and, and because we pump water down the hole. Uh, I mean, we're just returning returning water down, the, but we're still consuming water that we're pumping down the hole. Um, so having a water recirculation system that minimizes the no, the, the amount of water we need uh, by ninety percent, our customers love it. So therefore, if we're bringing that solution to the table, it has a competitive advantage to it because our customers. So, so I think the whole ecosystem is evolving that way. So therefore, uh, to Andy's point, in the future, I don't think you're gonna you're gonna be able to operate. Without having that frame of mind, because everybody else is going to be demanding it. It's a little bit like the whole COVID, uh, the the COVID environment right now. Uh, You got a lot of companies that are basically demanding that your employees are vaccinated before you step foot on their property. Well, therefore, uh, it won't be long before companies won't be able to operate without fully vaccinated employees. So it's the, a little bit the same kind of thing on ESG. It won't be long before you can't operate without a certain piece of equipment that is not polluting. And they won't allow that uh, the polluting piece of equipment. So you might as well start down that road and be leaders rather than, than be at the, at the back end of, of that.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on Insights today to talk to us about this important uh, subject. We, uh, I, I believe fully we need a broader source of access to capital. I also agree, Andy, with your comment about that lack of, uh, of firms at that sort of larger but not extremely large uh, size in our, in our region. And I also can identify in my own mind a number of firms that if they had that capital and that structure, might be ready for breakout potential. So we do appreciate you uh, sharing your ideas today and look forward to getting that paper widely circulated uh, in New Brunswick. So thanks again.
2: Thanks so much, David. Thanks, David. You've been
3: listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legier and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.